Good morning. It's a lovely day. We're excited for what God will do uh, with us. Um, special shout out to those who are worshiping with us online. Um, some of us are not feeling well today, so if you're at home and you're worshiping with us, wherever you are, uh, we are with you. I, I pray that God's blessings will be with you and extended to you today also. Now, as you all know, last Friday, the Supreme Court finally reversed its decision on the issue of Roe v. Wade. I'm not sure if you're following the news, but uh, let's, let me give you the facts. According to the Pew Research Center, there is an estimate of about 60 million aborted children from 1973 up to the present. So that's 60 million, six zero. It's a combination of the people who died during the great leap forward from 1940s and the Cultural Revolution in China to the 1970s, 60 million people. If you are looking at it from a moral perspective, you may probably ask, how could there be morally civilized and upright men and women who have decided one day to kill their unborn children? Or let's put it another way, if you're looking at it in a theological perspective, you may probably ask, how could, if there's a God, how could he allow all these morally informed parents, doctors, and institutions to systematically kill an estimate of about 60 million unborn children from 1973 up to the present? If there is such thing as a good God, how can he allow this to happen? Now, there's this guy by the name of Charles Templeton. He's uh, the body, best friend, and co founder of the Youth for Christ International of Billy Graham. Now, many of us know Billy Graham. He's been one of the greatest evangelists and pastor of America. Charles Templeton was the rising, rising star and was co-preacher with him during their uh, evangelist crusades here in America and in Canada. But in 1956, Charles Templeton decided to abandon his faith. Now, there are so many reasons that he can think of. But in 1996, he published his book entitled Farewell to God. After five years, in 2001, he died. His objections to the faith are all based on the moral issues. If God is good, then why is there suffering in the world? How can a good God allow evil and suffering to exist? There's a, a journalist by the name of Lee Strobel who interviewed him before he died in 2001, after he released the book. And this journalist was asking him face to face, what exactly is the main reason why you left the faith? Now, you've been toe to toe with Billy Graham. What made you decide to leave the faith? This is what he said, and I quote. He, Charles Templeton said, it was a photograph in Life magazine. It was a picture of a black woman in Northern Africa they were experiencing a devastating drought. She was holding her baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there's a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? How could the loving God do this to that woman? Unquote. Well, this question bears a lot of assumptions to begin with. What does it mean to say that God is good? What, what does good mean? Why do we expect God to rescue us from suffering? And it's the absence of 
suffering the only thing that legitimizes the goodness of God? Or put it another way, does the presence of evil and suffering make God evil? Now, I know that you had a tough week this week and all you, had, all you want to do is uh, relax and restful weekend. I, I understand that. But there's no going around with this topic. If, if we are going to address the issues of life, God's goodness and suffering, we have to deal with this issue. So let's talk about this. What I will do is to relate this issue and to answer this issue with the inheritance that God gave to the people of Israel by answering the tough question of faith, pain, suffering, and privileges. Now, let's put it this way. Have you ever asked, what's the whole point of God giving the land to Israel? Why not give it to the Filipinos instead? I mean, we're good stewards. Why not give it to the Israelites? Why not give it to the Americans? What's the whole point of God giving the land to the Israelites? Let me show you from Joshua chapter 18. I'm going to put it side by side, Joshua 18.1 and 1951, because this is the ending and beginning of those two chapters. Let me read by starting from verse 1. It says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set, set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So there's a mention of Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle was erected. And inside the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter 19, verse 51, it says, These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord. Again, Shiloh was mentioned. At the entrance of the tent of the meeting, so they finished dividing the land. So in the whole issue of division of the land, since the beginning, since they entered the promised land in Joshua chapter 1, up to chapter 19, this is where God has finally divided the land and allotted to all the tribes of Israel. That means the issue of division of the land started and ended in Shiloh. God made the decision. That's the whole point of it. It was God who made the decision which land to whom and to which tribe. If we pay close attention to this language, it gives us an image of Jesus Christ when he was doing the Last Supper with his disciples. He broke the bread and he gave it to each one. This is like God in Shiloh distributing the inheritance to the seven other tribes of Israel. So they assembled in the tabernacle. God decides the piece of land. If you happen to observe, the tribe of Benjamin was mentioned first. And then at the very last, the tribe of Dan was mentioned last. Of all the tribes, it just says that there's a boundary for every tribe, and then cities were given to every tribe. But then at the very last, Dan was mentioned, it was said differently. In verse 47, this is what it says. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, pause. What that means is that what God gave to Dan, he lost. He was actually never been able to conquer the land that was given to him. So what he did is, when he lost, he went up to the very north and conquered a place named Lachem, and then renamed it to Dan. Actually, this is what it said. So the territory of the people of Dan was lost. The people of Dan went up and fought against Lachem. And after capturing it, striking with a sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lachem Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor. What that means is that all the tribes in Israel were given inheritance 
only the tribe of Dan lost their inheritance. Now, this is very simple. This is like, if, if you are familiar with the parables, this is like the prodigal son asking for his inheritance, going to a faraway country, spending all his inheritance, and going back home. This is Dan, the prodigal son. So, back to our initial question. That's practically chapter 18 and chapter 19. Our initial question is, what's the whole point of God giving Israel the inheritance? What does this have to do with God being good or not good if God is not good? Let's put the big picture. The story of Israel is the continuation of the story of Adam and Eve. So we cannot divorce the story from, from each other. Adam and Eve started the story and then all progressed to the story of Israel. Adam and Eve represented the whole humanity. In fact, the word Adam from the word Adama means soil or ground. The word Adam also means humanity. In fact, uh, Adam and Eve means humanity. The image of God was put not in, in the man only or in the woman only, but in humanity. So Adam and Eve represented humanity. They were in perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden until finally they decided God is not that good. God is not, probably God is keeping something from us. And so when the opportunity came, the serpent said, eat this fruit, you will be wiser than God or as God. So they took the opportunity and ate the fruit and they rebelled. So God kicked them out from the land. That's the story of Adam and Eve. The story of Israel is God bringing back the nation of Israel from exile going back to Eden. See, Canaan is the new Eden. So it's the reverse of the story of Adam and Eve. Canaan is the reverse of the story of Adam and Eve. Therefore, the whole point, the whole point of God giving Israel the land is so that God can dwell in fellowship with man again. This is like God saying, Guys, I want you to have the chance to enjoy the land with me. So Adam and Eve were kicked out from the land. They could not enjoy God anymore. God is giving Israel a place in the land so that they could enjoy again the fellowship with God. And from there, from starting from there, it is for the whole world's benefit that Israel would be there in that land. What is God doing there? The, point of, uh, the whole point of Israel receiving the land is not just because they were oppressed in Egypt and God was trying to make up for it. No, that's not the point. The point of God giving the land is not because God wants to break up the pattern of inequality and defeat the white oppressors, free the slaves. That's not the point either. See, the whole point is that God wants to fellowship with man again. God wants to restore that broken relationship Again, now here's the truth. Uh, truth is uh, a very complex topic nowadays. Um, I remember this one guy who's saying, the truth is not your truth or my truth. The truth is the truth whether we like it or not. It's the truth. So let me say this. God doesn't owe anything to anyone. Let me say that one more time. God doesn't owe anything to anyone. What that means is that God doesn't owe Adam and Eve anything. The whole plan was for them to stay in Eden rent-free forever. It was them who broke or breached the contract. They were not supposed to eat from this particular fruit, from the tree. And they broke their contract. So God kicked them out. Will God be evil if God kicks them out? The answer is no. Because they broke 
their contract. But God in his mercy conceived of a plan to restore that broken relationship between God and mankind, starting with Abraham and then the people of Israel. It means that if we are, that they are to act as go-between. So the function of Israel, the real reason why they were put in the land is so that they can become, as, as the Bible said, the kingdom of priests. They are supposed to be the go-between between God and the other nations of the world. It's not only for their benefits that they are in the land, but only also for the benefit of the whole world. That's the idea in Genesis chapters 12 verses 1 to 3. It means that when God gave them the particular law, the law is supposed to show the other nations of the world that there is only one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. That the proper response to God's mercy is love, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. That allegiance to God must be exclusive, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13 and 14. And if they will not honor God exclusively in that relationship, God will destroy them completely, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 15. But in all this, Israel missed that part where God is saying, Deuteronomy 12, 10, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. What this verse is saying is that God intends that they go into the land so that worship will exist only inside the land, so that there will be a restoration of fellowship between God and humanity in the land of Canaan. Picture this, after Adam and Eve were kicked out, it was Abel who offered a sacrifice to the Lord from the finest of his flocks, and the Bible said God accepted it. This is the picture of Israel here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. God can accept and will accept their offering if they worship God exclusively. Here's the thing. God gave them the land, not because God owed them anything, but because this is a privilege for them. They were not entitled to it. It was a sheer act of mercy on behalf of God. And what God is saying here to Israel in Deuteronomy is that Canaan is my land, but I want you to enjoy it with me. Canaan is God's land, but he's saying to Israel, I want you to enjoy this with me. Have you heard the phrase, mi casa su casa? My house, your house. It's like God is saying to them in all hospitality, come in, enjoy my house with me. That's what he's saying to the Israelites. But they missed the point but they, because they thought that God is just giving them, their, giving them the land because they are entitled to the land. Because simply they, they thought God promised our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And therefore, we have the right to the land. But that's not the point. The point is that God is giving them the privilege. What God is saying is, my house, your house, come to me, but there are certain conditions. There are contracts if you stay in this house. Worship is exclusive to me. You cannot worship other idols, only me. In fact, that's what the Ten Commandments say. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship to God is exclusive. 
In fact, to make it more objective, God is saying, I will live with you in a tent physically so that you know I am here with you. That's what we call Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant rests, the throne of God rests. God was with the people. That's, that's what it means. The decision of God to dwell in Shiloh is an act of goodness. So when we ask, is God good? Definitely so. Why? Because he decided to dwell with them. That's very positive. But what does it mean for us then? What does it mean for us that God is good? Trust Templeton is asking, if God is good, then why did he allow evil and suffering to exist? What does it mean for us then? It means a lot. On one hand, although we did not receive a physical inheritance, and anyway, by chance, anyone here who owns a real estate in Israel? Anyone? No? No? Okay, cool. I'm just trying to check, just in case you have a, a physical inheritance in Israel. No one, no Christians, have any real estate in Israel. It's, it's very expensive there to live there. On the other hand, although we did not receive a physical inheritance, we somehow believe that we have a different kind of inheritance. Would you say amen if you agree? Amen? And, and somehow, because we believe that, we expect God to treat us in a special way because when we pray, we expect God to answer all our prayers. Would you say amen to that? When we are in trouble, we expect God to rescue us. Now, I want to answer this dilemma with the passage from the Gospel of Luke. Is God obligated to answer all our questions? This is, the, this is actually the assumption of the question, if God is good, then why is there evil and suffering? It is because some Christians expect that God is obligated to answer all our prayers with a yes. Imagine if God will always say yes to us and there's no no. Imagine those selfish prayer requests. Now, Luke chapter 12 gives us a different scenario and answers the question to this problem of pain and suffering. Now, it begins with Jesus preaching to the crowd, and there was this guy who had a very specific issue with Jesus. And so it starts with verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is not an accident. We're talking about inheritance all the way back, Joshua 18 and 19. Now, there's an issue here about inheritance. So apparently, our assumption is that this is not the firstborn because the firstborn is given double portion of inheritance. This must be a second brother, a younger brother, who is waiting for the inheritance to be divided. This sounds He wants his land. He wants this. Now, we're talking about the division of the land. This guy, being a Jew normally would not go to a Roman, Roman court because all the Romans are interested at are taxes. They, they're not interested in the division of the land. So this guy would go to Jesus because he knew that Jesus understood the Torah. Jesus understood how it works, the division of the inheritance. So, you know, normally he'd say, Jesus or rabbi or teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this guy correctly understands how inheritance works. But then, instead of responding to him in a way, that, in a way that's positive, uh, in fact, Jesus could have said, okay, I will adjudicate, I will try to, to, you know, to facilitate the division of the land. 
But Jesus responded to him differently. He said this, verse 14. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What's that all about? The guy was just asking help. And Jesus lashed out with the idea of greed and possessions. I think Jesus saw through the heart of this person who was asking. Because he saw the real motive behind why this guy was asking. The real motive behind has something to do with human greed. But what is greed? What does it greed means? This is not about claiming his rights because inheritance is a right. God gave the 12 tribes of Israel their rights to the land. This guy must have these rights for this inheritance. But Jesus saw through his heart. He knew there's a, a deeper problem, not just his rights. He knew there's a motive behind that. Greed has nothing to do with the rights. Greed has something to do with the motive of this guy. And so to answer this, Jesus told the parable. Are you still with me? This is the parable. He said, A land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. What this parable is saying is very simple and yet complex at the same time. But let me clarify this. God is not against rich people. If you're rich, God is not against you. God is not against any rich person. God is not against enjoying the fruits of your labor. But that means if you have retired and you're enjoying your 401k, and that's perfectly nice and good. God is not against that. God is not against planting hard and working hard. That's, God is not against that. What God is against, because this context and the point of this parable is greed, God is against greed. Look, it's about the rich man. This is chapter 12. If you flip your, your Bible to chapter 16, Jesus would say another parable, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. What's wrong with the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man, the rich man's neighbor is Lazarus. He enjoyed himself with the riches, neglecting to love Lazarus as his neighbor. And so Jesus in chapter 16 would say, in your lifetime, you enjoyed being rich, but Lazarus was poor. You have neglected the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This rich guy enjoyed the pleasures of life while neglecting the great, one of the greatest commandments of the Bible. This is the problem with the rich. The rich are set, not all the rich, I'm not generalizing, but the issue of greed. The rich is the rich and the greed sometimes go together. And Jesus is against this one. Look at this. This is what he said. But I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. This is like me patting my back. Good job. You did a good job. You earned enough. You have enough. You have enough for many years. He said, soul, you have ample goods laid for many years. 
relax, eat, and be merry. This guy had so much, he had enough, and so he said, I will just, big, I will just build bigger, better barns. What's wrong with building a bigger, better barns? Uh, when I was reading this, I cannot help but think of Jeff Bezos building more Amazon depots, Amazon depots everywhere in the United States. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. God is not against riches. No, he's against greed. What's wrong is what he said in verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have, have ample goods laid up for many years. Now, this is wrong in many, on many levels. Why is that? The phrase, eat, drink, and be merry is a known phrase all the way from Ecclesiastes. You know that. The philosopher in Ecclesiastes is saying, See, there's really nothing. The ultimate goal of man is, is, not, is nothing. The ultimate goal of man is to enjoy the pleasures of life. So eat, drink, and be merry. If there's no reason or purpose in life, the only reason for living is pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry. In the language of Dick Soto, it's relax, see a movie, literally. All right? But here, the guy is saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, I know you know this or... You have heard about this, but there's a philosophy, it's called hedonism. The hedonists assert that the ultimate goal in life is to enjoy pleasure. The ultimate goal is pleasure. That means anything that brings pain and suffering is evil. Anything that brings pleasure is good. And so if this guy is a Jew, apparently he believes in hedonism, he believes in pleasure, then there's a contradiction in his life. You see the problem here. If this guy is a Jew and he knew the Torah and he knew that the ultimate goal is to worship God, not just to enjoy pleasure, there's a problem with his mentality. See, I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But this goes a lot deeper than that. Why is that? Because any Jew who have read the book of Leviticus know this. Now, if you have any friend or... Uh, worker, co-worker, or if you're related to anyone who's a Jew, th they have this ceremony, it's called bar mitzvah. Whenever a boy reaches 13 years old, he will be, he will be brought to the synagogue. He, is asked, he will be asked to, to read from the Torah a portion. Uh, and there's a ceremony called bar, bar mitzvah. It's like the equivalent of our baptism. From then on, he is expected to become a full-pledged member of the community. He is to be the son of commandment because bar, mitzvah, literally means son of the law. He becomes a Jew, a real full-pledged Jew. That means all his life from then on, he's required to read the Bible. And if this guy has reached bar mitzvah, that means he have read Exodus. And what's in Exodus in the first place? It's very interesting, interesting topic in Leviticus. Leviticus 25, did I say Exodus? Leviticus 25. The Bible is saying in Leviticus 25, there are six years of planting, cultivating, and harvesting. But on the seventh year, it's called Sabbath year. So there's not just Sabbath week or, you know, the seventh day. There's also Sabbath year. Six years, plant, cultivate, harvest. Seventh year, you will do nothing. You will not touch the ground. You will not cultivate. You will not harvest nothing. The land must rest also. Leviticus chapter 25. 
And why would God say that? Why would God put that in the statute, in the commandment? Here's the rationale. Leviticus 25, verse 18 and the following. It says, Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. Very nice. The land will yield its food, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. Again, it's like saying, you're good. You're, I got you. And if you say, what shall we eat on the seventh year? It's a practical question. If I plant and harvest for six years, and I don't plant on the seventh year, what will I eat? This is what God said. I will command my blessing on you on the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you saw in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. That means you will, you will plant cultivate harvest for six years and that will be enough for another three more years. You will have not even enough, plenty, plenty. I mean, that's how God works. And why would God do that? Now, what this means is that God will provide enough to cover for those three more years. This is God's way to teach the Israelites dependence and trust on him. This is exactly what happened when they were staying in the wilderness for 40 years. God would give them manna every day, manna every day. But on the seventh day, God will not give them manna. But on the sixth day, God will give them double portion. So that on the seventh day, even though they do not, do not harvest manna, they will have enough. And then Monday, uh, sorry, uh, Sunday, they will have another manna. This is God's way of saying, you will have to trust me because this is my land. This is my house. You don't have to trust in what you can do. Just trust in what I can do for you. This is precisely why Jesus taught, he taught his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily thing. It's a daily thing to ask God for bread so that we can keep depending and trusting on him for our daily needs. So this guy, this guy in the parable, has kept his act together. He made plans to go bigger, but he neglected the law. The law says, Sabbath year, no harvest, no planting, no cultivation. But this guy thinks differently. He's thinking bigger, better barns. I don't care about Sabbath year. I will build bigger, better barns. That means cultivation and harvest will continue even on the seventh year. Are you with me? This is a breaking of the law. What this guy is saying that I don't care what God says, but I trust in my bigger and better barns more than I trust God. My security lies in the size of my barns and my hard work, not on God who owns the land and who blesses the land. See, because ultimately, life is not about God. It's about my happiness. Look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It's all about his happiness. It's all about pleasure to him. See, this is the picture of immigrants coming to the United States, working double and triple jobs, learning, trying to eat, earn as much as possible, and sometimes at the expense of their health or their relationships or their families. And what's the reason? Why, why would they do that? Two words, American dream. See, beloved, the right to the pursuit of happiness may be a thing that encapsulates the American dream, but we are not called 
to pursue happiness. We are not called to pursue the American dream. Our calling is different. We are not called to pursue happiness. Why would I say that? Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus already said, you are blessed. If people persecute you, you are blessed. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the meek, the peacemakers. That's us. We are already blessed. We don't need to seek more because God has given us enough. This is the picture of the people who is trying to pursue happiness. I understand that. It's, it's, in the, it's in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's right. But that's not the main goal of life. That's not the calling of the follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say this, uh, and you might disagree with me, but it's okay. But I'd like you to think about this very carefully. I will say this because I care. The American dream is the enemy of the gospel. The American dream is the enemy of the gospel. Question, is the will of God for Christians to be happy and successful? You can almost hear the serpent with this question in the background saying, did God really say you aren't Christian enough if you pursue the American dream? Does it make you less a Christian if you pursue the American dream? Isn't it your right as an individual to pursue happiness? No, you cannot pursue happiness. See, if you're a Christian, you can pursue happiness to your heart's content and be a follower of Jesus at the same time. That's what the devil is trying to say. It's like saying you can build bigger and better barns and still follow Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. That's a lie, brothers and sisters. Why would I say that? Jesus said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. You will have to choose one. You cannot pursue the American dream, the pursuit of happiness, and follow Jesus. But Jesus would say, if anyone wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself. That's a happiness. The Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness, something to do with pleasure. That's not the calling that Jesus is telling us. The American dream is the enemy of the gospel. See, greed is not about wanting more. Greed is not about the excess desire for wealth. Greed is about devoting your life to the pursuing of money rather than God. Let me say this. Greed is the way by which we satisfy our needs with things we buy rather than being satisfied with God. Here's the picture of Israel. God gave them the land. They became so focused on the land rather on the God who gave the land. See, some Christians, when they got in America, when they were blessed by God for whatever form of pleasure, they became so focused with the things, not in the God who gave the things. See, things... It will run out. But God's blessings will not run out. This is the main point of this one. So in this idea, greed is turned to idolatry when we are so focused on the things that we can get instead from the pleasure that we can get from God. It turns to idolatry. See, if we do that, we also miss the point like the Israelites missing the point of the land. It's not about the land. It's not about the pleasure the gospel of the kingdom was about God's rescue from sin. 
the whole idea why God gave Israel the land was so that they can have fellowship together, a restored relationship. That's the whole point. The whole point is dinner with God, fellowship with God. Not, God, thank you for the things. I enjoyed myself. No, it's the fellowship with God. That's the whole point of it. Freedom is not about the life free from sickness or free from deaths or free from pain and suffering. You know, that's prosperity gospel, right? Jesus never promised this kind of life to us. Let's be clear and honest. Let's be honest with one another. Jesus never promised that Christians must, that Christians should be successful and happy. I have read the Bible. I've never read that. I've never read that teaching that God is obligated to make us happy and successful. What I read from the Bible is that if we follow Jesus, we will be persecuted. That's for sure. Matthew chapter 5 says we are blessed if we are persecuted for his righteousness sake. But see, this is the problem here. The whole point of this rescue from God is that not so that we can have things, but so that we can be reconciled with God. Why I'm saying is this, because the end of the parable in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said this, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, what he's saying is that we are emotional beings. When we love things, we pour our hearts, the things that we believe, it's like falling in love. The moment you fall in love, you devote your things to that one person, your life, your money, your time, your energy. You build your future, your hopes, and everything in the future you build with that person because you fell in love. We are emotional beings. What Jesus is saying is that for where your treasure is, where you think is the most important thing in your life, your heart will be there. So if you feel that your life is geared towards the pursuit of happiness, make money, make money, then your heart's there. It's not about following Jesus anymore. See, we Christians have a different calling. Our calling is the kingdom. That's our calling. Jesus understood this. So in response to the inheritance, Jesus calibrated our understanding with the inheritance. So he said this in verse 29. Jesus said, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father, father is a good father, and your father knows that you need them. The father is not an absentee father who's working abroad. This is not God. This father is a good God who knows what we need. Instead, Jesus said, seek the kingdom and this thing shall be added unto you. Our focus is not on the things that should be added unto us. Our focus is His kingdom. And by seeking His kingdom, it's not about the land. It's not about the inheritance. It's, a, it's not about how much we can earn the shortest time. It's not about how much properties we can buy so that we can retire, relax, and kick back and enjoy our retirement. That's not the whole point of living. See, hedonism is anti-Christianity. Christianity is about contentment to what God gives. And what the good Father gives is enough for the day. And what is enough for the day so that we can depend on Him daily. Again, give us this day our daily bread. See, when we pray this, when we have just enough, when we pray this, 
we develop this childlike faith. We develop this childlike faith of dependence. This is the reason why Jesus said, let these little children come to me. Not because they're cute and innocent. Jesus said that because they have the childlike faith. It's easy to trust in Jesus in whatever he says. If God is good and if I have enough, it's good enough for me. It's called contentment. Greed is the antithetical of contentment. So you see, when we ask the question, how can a good God allow evil and suffering to, to happen? With that question, we are assuming that God is already good. But our assumption is that God owes us, therefore, we should be spared from evil and suffering. That's a false idea. Pain and suffering exist because of sin, not because of God. God should not be, God is not the cause of sin and evil and suffering. It's sin is the cause of pain and suffering. So when I see conflict in Ukraine and Russia, I see the effects of sin. So when I see people robbing establishments and justifying it with the word reparation and justice, I see the effects of sin. So when I see women who are desperate so they commit abortion, I see the effects of sin. When I see members of the transgender community committing suicide, I see the effects of sin. We have a lot of problems in our society. It's the effect of sin. It's being away from God. Um, Americans fall into the trap of the American dream and the pursuit of happiness. And finally, they will say, there's really no meaning to life because the real meaning can only be found in God. What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's pray. Father, we declare today that you are a good God. Father, we declare that you're not just a good God, but you give us enough because you love us and that you care for us. And if we Christians, sometimes we suffer we get sick, we lose jobs, things happen to us. It's not because that you are not good anymore. It's just because these are the effects of sin. We are in this world, so we also suffer with the world. But thank you, Father, for the hope that even though we suffer these things, there will be a time that you will give us that inheritance that we are all waiting for. We may not receive the greatest riches in this world, but we will receive something that you have kept for us hidden in everyone's sight. It will be revealed on the last day. Father, thank you for the contentment that we have and the assurance that even though we may not have all those greatest things, but you are enough for us. If we have you, we are happy. We are enough. Help us, Father, to see contentment in you. Help us to see that our focus should be on seeking your kingdom, your reign, the fellowship of you instead of things, things that may make us happy but not truly happy. Father, would you renew our minds? Would you renew our spirit? Allow us to fall in love with you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.